Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. keep going where we're at. I got the big letter. Man, I can't even lift this thing up. I get a backache lifting it up. Wow. Um, what Paul's been, Paul's trying to get at with them here is to the big picture, what he's striking at here is the heart of their division, where they're comparing themselves with each other, where they're, they're, either, they're bragging about who they follow or what their abilities are, or what their capabilities are, or their godliness or their ungodliness. He's saying, you know, all of that is a bunch, that's carnal. That's like little kids on a playground who are trying to compete with one another on who can run the fastest or who can chew the biggest piece of bubble gum or whatever it is that you do as little kids. He's saying you're acting like kids. Verse 8, you're already full, you're already rich, you've, you've reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. Is that, how, how, do, you, how do you take that one? Yeah, Paul's being sarcastic, oh, you're king already, you guys, you, you don't need anything. You know, you ever run into somebody that you can't tell them anything? Mm, no, yeah. everything. Well, I guess you know everything. I'll, I'll just leave you go and do your own thing. It's sarcasm here. He's being sarcastic with them because in their estimation, they had it all, right? I mean, they were the Corinthians church. They had all these big, uh, supposedly big shots there. Everybody was erudite. Everybody was wise. You know, had a lot of intelligence, whatever. They didn't need anything. I mean, what, if, what, if, um, what was Christ's uh, scathing rebuke to Laodicea? Or lukewarm. Why? He says, you, you, you guys are rich. You think you're rich. You think you can see. You think you've got it all. Yeah. And remember the Pharisees, you know, when, when Christ was dealing with the Pharisees and uh, he rebuked them and sarcastically said, oh, you guys see, you guys aren't blind. You, you know where you're going. He's not to be taken literally. He's being sarcastic with them because in their own minds, they didn't need anything. And Paul's being sarcastic with the Corinthian believers here. I, I you know, I, I had a friend who, he knows everything. He, he knows it all. You can't tell him anything. I asked him one time, I said, you ever wrong? No. You write all the time? Yep. He's, al- he's always right. Never wrong. And uh, once he thought he made a mistake, but he was wrong about that. So, he, you know, look, folks, the more godly you are, the more you realize you don't have all the answers. And the more, I don't want to use the term depressed, that's not a good word, but the more you realize that you're really nothing. Apart from Christ, you, you just realize what was Peter's problem? Well, Lord, everybody's going to run from you, but not me. I'll be there. I'm going to stick with you. Well, what happened when he ran 
He was the first one gone. Why? Because he was depending on his own strength. Paul is telling them, he's saying, you know, you need a little bit of humility here. I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Pretend uh, you're trying to strategize to create this worldwide movement to transform society, right? Who are you going to pick? You're not going to pick a bunch of Losers, right? Would you have picked Peter? Not me. What about James and John? Nope. Not them. Paul is saying, you know, when God wanted to do something, he did not select the cream of the crop. He selected the riffraff of the world. And he said he probably selected us just to make the point that it's not us. <laughs> you know, um, if, if God would, would have picked the most, the most intelligent and powerful men to lead Christianity, what could what they have thought? It was them, right? God didn't want them to thinking it was them. He wanted to understand it wasn't them. It was him. He said God displayed us apostles last. As men condemned to death, we've been made a spectacle. Now, we don't understand, you know, one, one of the things here, it's interesting, you know, with the hanging of Saddam Hussein, which probably if anybody needed to be hung by the neck till dead, it was probably him. But do you notice the uproar with all the bleeding hearts? Oh, it was awful. You know, why'd you do that? Oh, that's horrible. Why? You know, blah, 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 blah. You know, we don't, we... And we don't, in our society, we have so sanitized death and that, we don't understand what it was like back then. Back then, when you were condemned to die, you were marched through the street to your place of execution. And people watched you being marched along to your place of execution and they would throw food at you. They would throw refuse at you. They would jeer at you. They would laugh and mock as you went to your place of execution. That was part of the punishment of being executed. And Paul is saying, God has marched us along to our, almost like to our place of execution as a spectacle to show just how unworthy and how weak we are. That's the imagery that he's using here. I love reading history in, 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 in Newgate Prison in, in London. You know, you were marched three miles outside to the gallows where you were hung. And I mean, it was, it was a carnival atmosphere almost. You weren't, you know, put behind a, a screen with three witnesses to, I mean, it was, it was public. And Paul is saying God has made us a public spectacle. Why? So someone say, you you know, good night, if they can save Paul, I guess he could save anyone. If he can do that to that person, he can do that to anyone. Paul's saying, 
we've been made a spectacle, so, something, something to be stared at in disbelief. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you're wise. Sarcasm bleeding through a little bit. We are weak, but uh, you're strong. You're distinguished. We're dishonored. This shows the paradox of Christianity. How do you win? You lose. How are you made strong? You're made weak. How do you become wise? You become a fool. And what, what, what's going on here is, is this, this is the basic idea. As long as you're putting faith and trust in your ability, your wisdom, your power, your might, who are you not putting trust in? Christ, God. And the point is, before you can take what God has to offer, you've got to drop what you have. You can't have both. Paul's saying, I made a fool. I'm dishonored. To the present hour now, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed, beaten, and homeless. And we, not only that, he says, I don't have any money. I'm not in this Christian gig for the money. By the way, that was a, that's going to be something that rears its ugly head in 2 Corinthians, where people say, well, you know, the only reason Paul was in the ministry is so he can become rich. And Paul says, well, where's the money? <laughs> I ain't got it. I don't know where it's at. If, if I had to pick a vocation in order to become rich, I'd certainly pick the wrong one, being a Christian. It certainly hasn't won me anything. He said, we're labor, we're, we labor working with our own hands. He said, I don't even live off of other people's charity. I work to pay my own bills, my, make my own way. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. He said, you know, I'm reviled, and what do I do in return? I bless. I'm persecuted, what do I do? I endure it. Now, now, there's a lot of theology in that little statement there. See, when we face persecution, what's the first thing we think of? Why me? Right? And the second thing is, i got to get out of this. Right? What did Paul say? When I'm persecuted, what do I do? I endure it. I stick it out. Right? Being defamed, being spoken against, we try to persuade people. We try to preach the gospel to them, even when we're defamed. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. The idea, what's filth and off-scouring? When you clean off something really cruddy, what do you clean off? The filth and the off-scouring. He's saying we are the refuse. We are the, 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 the garbage, metaphorically. This is not someone who's walking around strutting about how godly he is and how good a teacher he is or how good an apostle he is. This is someone who says, if it wasn't for Christ, I would be nothing. I don't compare myself to others. I just hope I come out in the end being faithful to what God has called me to be. And I don't write these things to shame you as my beloved children, but as my beloved children, I warn you. See, I'm not writing this to make you feel bad. I'm not writing this to just scold you. You're my children. I love you and I want to see the best for you. 
And as long as you keep thinking that it's you and it's your power and it's your might and your strength and your wisdom and your resources, you'll never catch the true power of God, right? You'll, you'll, never, you'll never understand what it means to depend on him. You might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. From Jesus Christ, I have begotten you through the gospel. What's he saying? You might have a lot of teachers, but how many fathers do you have? One, Paul saying, I care for you like a father cares for his children. I care for you. I want the best for you. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. <laughs> yes. Got a sneeze coming here. So if you hear a big hot chew on the tape, don't worry about it. I won't I won't get it in your Bible. I'll make sure I'll you know. Oh, you guys uh, He's saying Paul and this is and I, this is something fascinating here. What's Paul saying? Imitate me. What does he mean by imitate me? Now, when's the last time you had any Christian look at you in the eye and tell you, just follow my lead, do what I do? Why not? What do you usually say? Well, you know, don't do as I do, but do as I say. Yeah. The challenge here, and again, understand Paul's heart. His challenge here is saying, be an imitator of me like I have, what? Become a fool. I've given up. I've become as the off-scouring of the world, the filth of all things. He says, you, you want to imitate somebody, be like me. And later on in Philippians, he says, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And you know what? All of us in here should get to a level in our spiritual life where we can look at another believer and say, do what I do. That's not arrogant. It's not being arrogant or, or pompous or anything. But if you are following Christ and your goal is to honor him and you are walking in humility and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, what better way to help someone than to say, do what I do. That's what Paul is telling him, right? Do what I do. You want to know how to live the Christian life? Look at me. How have I lived mine? What's happening to me? And, and that's, folks, we, we are to be those kind of models. We, that's what we're to be. Isn't that a good testimony to unbelievers as well? Yeah. I should be able to look at someone who's, you know, I've been a Christian now for 30, almost 40 years. I mean, it's a long time. I know, I don't look that old. I look young and handsome, but... Um, <laughs> I'm staring the big 5-0 here, and that's a scary prospect. Um, but, uh, yeah. How long ago was that for you? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a while. All right, all right, all right. But awesome. I carry it well. Okay, all right. That Grecian formula does wonders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I should be able to, to live a life of character and, and godliness to an extent 
that I can tell other people to follow my lead. Not, not, not with the idea that I'm perfect, right? That's, that's not the point. Because Paul would be the first one to say, look, I'm not perfect. But what was Paul's attitudes, right? It was his attitudes. It was his approach. That's what he's saying. Follow me. Because what am I doing? I am following Christ. Don't follow me just to follow me. And by the way, Paul's not saying, follow me and I'm going to order you around and, you know, all that. That's, that's not. How do you, in, in the Christian life, how do you lead? By dictate or example? You lead by example. Yeah, when the pastor says, do it because I said it, you know, that's not a good enough reason. Follow him because he follows Christ. And Paul's saying, be imitators of me because see how I've lived. See how, see how I deal with situations. See how I handle life. And for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy is a fascinating character. When Paul died, he had two guys take his place, Timothy and Titus. Timothy was Paul's replacement. And Paul's saying, you know, I've sent Timothy to you because it's as good as me coming. Timothy is like me. Timothy is an imitator of me. Um, in Philippians, Paul says, Timothy has the same heart that I have. Um, Paul says, he's my son in the faith. You want to know what I think? Ask Timothy. You want to know what I feel about? Ask Timothy. And who is Timothy following? He was an imitator of Paul, who was imitating Christ. We all imitate Christ. And what happened to him? Was he, did he become uh, which church at Ephesus? No, that was John. He was, he was at Ephesus for a while in 1 Timothy. Um, what ultimately happened to him, we don't know. Hebrews indicates that he was imprisoned but released. Um, but he, he was Paul's replacement. I mean, he, he took over for Paul when Paul died, it was Timothy who took Paul's place. Um, he says, verse 8, Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Did, the idea of, huh? did Timothy deliver this letter? Um, possibly. There's a possibility. What do you think? Uh, in the text, sacrificial humility. I think power there is not the words of miracle power. It's not talking about miracles and all that <clears throat> stuff. It's talking about the power. Not not it's not the words, but it's the power behind the words. All right. And the idea of, they said, I'm not coming to you in word. In other words, using worldly wisdom. Remember, that's the contrast earlier on. You know, I didn't come to you speaking worldly wisdom. I came to you in meekness, fear, much trembling, preaching the gospel, which that is the power. It's the, the word of God, which is the power. It's not my erudite ability to speak. And he says, I'm, he says uh, the idea of puffed up. Puffed up is a really interesting word. It's used to be proud. And the idea of the tuflao, I think, is the Greek word. It means to fill with smoke. 
needs to fill something with smoke. When you filled something with smoke, it was puffed up. There was no substance to it, but it looked bigger than it really was. Now Paul's saying there are people that are puffed up with their own arrogance. They're, they're full of smoke, but there's nothing there. Don't be puffed up. Be humble. And he's saying, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to come in with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? A little bit of his paternal. See, you know, I want to come and encourage you, but do you want me to come to have to beat you guys? In a sense, discipline you, or do you want me to come in love with a spirit of gentleness? You know, and, and he's talking to them as, I mean, these are his, his sons and daughters in the faith. He cares for them. He wants them to be godly. He wants them to imitate Christ. He wants them to exhibit godly character. That's his heart. He's not saying, follow me just to follow me. Rather saying, follow me because I'm following God. I'm, I'm modeling my life after Christ. Let's all of us follow Christ. Let's follow him. Any, any questions so far? We're going to make it through chapter 5, I hope. All right. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Paul's saying, you know, I'm hearing reports about immorality among you. And uh, this is interesting. Now, morally, where was Corinthians on a scale of 1 to 100? One. All right. They were bad. Maybe a two. But Paul is saying, you know, I hear there's immorality among you. And not only that, I hear there's a brand of immorality among you that the Corinthians haven't even bought into yet. Now, if you're if you're if you're more ungodly than the world, you're you're in deep trouble. Right. And what was this that a man has his father's wife now? A lot of people say, well, that's incest. Um, probably the better way to understand is not, it doesn't say his father's wife in, in, to make it be his mother because it could have said that, right? Right. So most likely it's his stepmother. It's his father's wife. It's adultery. It's adultery. That's what it is. Yeah, it's not incest. Because had it been incest, he would have used that, that word. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken among you. In what sense were they puffed up? Well, there's a lot of ways to interpret that. Some will say, well, you're puffed up in the sense that you think it's okay. I don't think it's what that's what's really in mind. I think the idea there is that you're puffed up in, in the sense that um, you're showing compassion. I don't want to use the word compassion. Tolerance of it. You're tolerating it. All right. And not only that, but you're patting yourselves on the back because you're so gracious in tolerating this action. All right. Um, in fact, you're proud of the fact that you're not coming down on this guy. Um. Now, we, we had a situation, not, not this situation, but a situation happened here at Open Door many years ago where, you know, we'd had somebody fall into immorality. 
and uh, he had to resign his position here at the church. And uh, we had a lot of people that were really ticked that we actually forced him to resign. They were mad about that. Well, you shouldn't do that. You know, you should show him forgiveness and love and compassion and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, yes, I am to forgive, but there are consequences to behavior. All right. There's a cost associated with that. Now, what you find in Second Corinthians is that this man evidently repented. And the Corinthian church, instead of welcoming him back in, still was censoring him. They went the other way. All right. Paul is saying, if there's someone in your midst who's committing sin as a believer, what is your responsibility? To confront them. Well, you know, who am I to confront? You know, I got problems of my own. Look. Remember Revelation chapter one. Where's Christ? Chapter one. What's he doing? Chapter four. Chapter one. What's he doing? You got the right answer. Just speak up. Yeah, he's walking among the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, what's he doing in the middle of seven golden candlesticks? Checking them out. What's he checking them out with? He's, he's looking at them for flaws, for sin, for Christ is really concerned about the purity of the church. You know why? Because it's the purity of the church that gives it power. And what happened to the churches in Revelation? Well, Ephesus, you know, they were really great. You know, they they you know, they they were doctrinally sound, weren't they? I mean, they had the doctrine down. They were able to determine the false teachers and deal with them. But what was their flaw? They lost their first love. In other words, Ephesus was a church of doctrinal purity, but they started sliding in their love for one another. Are you, you ever been around a legalist? They're irritating, aren't they? Right? Because they, they know what God really wants you to do. <laughs> They're sure of that, right? And usually what God wants you to do is what they want you to do. At least that's the way I figured it out. There's no love. There's no compassion. There's no, it's just doctrine, doctrine. Be, look, God wants you to have doctrine, but you want to have love as well. Ephesians lost their, Ephesus lost their first love. And then what happened to, uh, you got Smyrna tossed in there. And then what happens to the next church? What, were they, what happened to them? What was their problem? What do they tolerate? Evil. They started tolerating evil. They didn't speak against it. You know, it was just, it was there. They they tolerated it. They didn't they didn't confront it. And then what happened to the next church? Well, what was tolerated in church three became open in church four. And then what happened with church five? You had a wholesale abandonment. Over to sin. Then you have Philadelphia. And then the Laodicean church is the dead church. What's the dead church? Where is Christ in Laodicea? He's outside wanting to get in. So how many Christians did you have in Laodicea? Zero. It was an apostate church. 
here's the point what you see. When you tolerate sin in a church, eventually that will kill it. It's just like cancer, right? You tolerate cancer and you don't do anything about it. What will eventually happen? You're dead. Paul is saying you guys are tolerating sin. And not only are you tolerating it, it's one thing to tolerate it. But it's another thing to congratulate yourself on how gracious and loving you are by not confronting it. And that's what they were doing. You're puffed up and have not rather mourned. What do you, what do you mean by mourn? Mourn over the sin. Be concerned about it. Are you concerned about sin in the church? You know, one of the things our church practices is church discipline. And you have a lot of people that just that they don't like, you know, what, how dare you throw somebody out of the church for committing immorality? Well, what does the Bible tell you to do? Confront them if they don't repent. What are you to do? Treat them like a tax collector. Sorry, Bart. <laughs> You're to throw them out of the church. Why? Discipline. That's what the Bible tells you to do. Now you're either going to do it or you're not. And it's not being, you know, you know, we're not talking about a spiritual Gestapo where you know you're trying to find every little fault in somebody and hauling them before the deacon board every day, you know, for that's not what it's talking about there. This is talking about blatant, open, unrepentant sin. You're to deal with it. It's it's part of your job as a member of the church, as leadership in the church, you're to deal with that. Because if you don't, it will kill the church. How did, how did God deal with sin in the first century church when Ananias and Sapphira showed up? Killed them. Killed them. Because if you let that impurity go in there, what happens? It's going to rot the church. And Paul is saying, you guys aren't mourning over this. You're not concerned about it. You're not confronting the guy. You're proud of the fact that he's still going to your church and you're not really going to deal anything with it. You know, after all, how gracious and loving can you be by just letting him do what he's doing? For indeed, as I absent body, but present and spirit have already judged, as I were present, him who has done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, I'm not there, but I'm telling you what, throw the guy out. Now, evidently, this guy was not repentant at this point, right? Matthew 18, what do you do? If anyone you see somebody sin, if a brother offends you, what do you do? Yeah, you don't go to the deacon board first, right? You don't get on the phone and call eight Christian friends and tell them about the problem, right? And, and say under the guise of a prayer request. <laughs> I want you to pray for brother, he's living in sin. Now, what do you do? You go one-on-one. -on -one. And if he hears you and repents, what happens? It's over. It's over. What if he doesn't hear? Go, go, you know, give it a period of time, get a couple more. And confront him again. And if he doesn't hear that, what happens? You take it to the church. And if he doesn't hear the church, what do you do? You excommunicate him. You remove him from, from the mess. You deliver him to Satan. What does it mean to be delivered to Satan? Delivering to Satan. What does that mean? Let him go. Take him away from the believers, from the influence of the believers, 
as a disciplinary thing, he is turned over to Satan for the destruction of what? His flesh. Unbridled sin will always do what? Destroy yourself. Right? It's easy to, you know, it's, it's, it'd be easy to get rid of all the drug addicts in the country. Give them all the drugs they want. They'll kill each other. Right? Yeah. Sin, sin is, sin is, sin is self-destructive. You destroy yourself. And Paul is saying, get him out of the church. And, and even though I'm not there, my, I'm there in spirit. And when you get together, get him out. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God is serious. Now listen, do you do this to unbelievers? Is this how you treat unbelievers in your church? No. No, why? Because they're unbelievers. What do you expect them to do? Sin, right? That's one of our problems as Christians. Is Christians, we want believers, unbelievers to act like believers. Look, they're not going to do that. But if someone says, I am a Christian, I follow Christ, I'm a member of this church, and they're living in unrepentant sin, what are you to do? You're to confront them. And if they don't repent, ultimately they are to be removed from the church, turned over to Satan in a judgmental way. So that they can they can be disciplined. In essence, and, and maybe an example of this would be when, when Peter told Christ, I won't deny, I'm not going to deny, I'm not going to deny. How did Christ respond? Remember? You'll deny me three times. He says, Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to have you to sift you like wheat. wheat. But I prayed for you that faith fell not and when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. In essence, what did Christ do? He allowed Peter to be sifted by Satan, right? He prayed for him, and, and, and Peter would not. Now, if you're a true believer, and you're delivered to Satan, what will happen? Either A, you're dead, or B, you will repent, right? One of those two things will happen. If you're not a believer, it doesn't matter, right? But what he's saying here is he's saying, look, deliver him to Satan. Your glorying is not good. Glorying in what? What are they glorying in? What are they praising? What are they glad about? Well, look how tolerant we are. See, we live, and that's a problem in America now, we live in an age where you're supposed to tolerate everything. And if you don't, judge now. Yeah. The second you stand up and say, I'm right and you're wrong, you're being a backwards bigot, a Christian fundy, you know, someone that needs to be shut up and muzzled, you know. And Paul is saying, you know, your toleration of sin is not good in the body of Christ. It is destructive. I just wanted to attest to what you said. Our church has always been pretty good at Even within the last couple of years, there was a situation, you know, and person was very active there, and, and they, there was a lot of denial and a lot of, you know, things that went on, but they addressed it, and they finally had to remove the person, mm -hmm. you know, because of the situation. I mean, from what I've seen, open door has always been as direct, you know, 
Open door has been bound by the scripture. You got to be bound by the scripture. When you do church discipline, you don't do it with a, with a haughty attitude. Galatians says, you know, consider yourself lest you be tempted. Realize that you could fall into the same trap, but don't shy away from doing what you have to do. You, you, you have, God tells you to do, and God holds you responsible in leadership. He holds the leadership responsible for dealing with it. Because if you don't, you wind up eventually like Laodicea. You're dead. You tolerate sin. After a while, it will destroy the church. It always does. The idea there, the idea there is, is that's not in the context of church discipline. All right? And there are some people that use that. Well, I'm not to judge them. You know, judge not lest ye be judged. You know, that's the whole idea. The idea of judging there is not judging in terms of determining um, right and wrong. The judging there is determining motives and, and passing sentence. I'm not to judge the motives of somebody and try to pass sentence on them, but by gosh, I can judge their actions, what they do. You understand the difference? I can't, you know, I can't judge why a person does something. I don't know their heart, but I can certainly know what they do. All right. And God, the, you know, in the same book, Matthew, where it says, judge not lest ye be judged. Christ is looking at the Pharisees who went around all day long judging other people. Being judgmental and, 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 and judging, you know, whether they're godly or not and putting your label on them. He said, that's not what you're to do. You don't go around doing that. But in the body of Christ, when someone is living in open rebellion and sin, it's the responsibility of the members of the body and of the leadership to deal with that. Because if you don't, it will destroy the church. And in the parable of the tares, Christ is not talking about church discipline. That's not the context. He's talking about, um, we want to do it, categorizing whether people are saved or lost. How do I know if you're all saved? Do I, do I know from 100% certain everyone in here is a Christian? No. I'm pretty close on a lot of you. Some of you I'm not worried, you know. I'm joking. I don't know. Do you know if I'm a Christian? Do you really know? Can you, can you bet your life on the fact that I'm a Christian or not? No. Can't. Nobody can. But what can you look at? My actions. And that's what Paul is, what Christ is saying. Don't be too quick to, to judge people because you might rip up wheat with tares. Don't, don't do that. But in the context of the body of Christ, when someone is living in open sin, you're to deal with that. A tear is not living in open sin. A tear is acting like a Christian and they do it so well that you're not sure where they are or not. That's that's maybe another way to look at it. Okay? And he's saying here, your glorying has got not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What is leaven a picture of in the Bible? Influence. You see, you had me before. He cheated. All right? People say, well, leaven is a picture of sin. No, it's not a picture of sin. Leaven is a picture of influence. What is leaven? Yeast. And what is Paul saying? How much yeast do you need to leaven a big lump of bread? Not a lot, because the influence spreads. 
And and everybody back then would have known that. They would they would understand that because it was common in those days. When you made bread, you took a little hunk of the old bread with a little bit of yeast in it to make the, the new bread. And it would it would go through the dough. It would rise and go through the dough. And what Paul is saying here is that don't you know that a little leaven will permeate and influence the entire batch of dough. So what will sin do? A little bit of sin will influence and permeate and destroy the whole body. And you got people just well, you know, if that person get away with that, I could certainly get away with this. And after a while, it just snowballs into a free for all. If you don't deal with sin, it'll destroy the church. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you're truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Start over. When Israel came out of uh, the promised, yeah, the promised land, when Israel came out of Egypt, what were they to do? Remember? When it came to bread, what were they to do? Unleavened. Why was it unleavened? There was a symbolic reason it was unleavened. They made it in a hurry. Huh? It's a new start. It's a new start. If they were to use, if they were to bake leavened bread, where did the leaven have to come from? The old bread. Where was the old bread? Egypt. The symbology there is you're starting over again. You're starting new. You don't drag the old in. You start over again. That's the imagery that Paul's picking up here. In the body of Christ, you don't let that old influence in. You start over again with new. Yeah. It's influences here. Now, in the context here, the, the leaven is a picture of the influence of sin. And he's saying, you got to start out with a new lump. You're a new lump. You're not the old lump with old leaven in it. Purge that out. Get rid of that old influence. Get rid of that sin so that you may be a new lump. Deal with the sin, because if you don't, it'll destroy the church. There are churches today that have been destroyed over this. How, why is it that, that the Episcopal and congregational churches, and all, why, are they, why is it they're in the mess they're in? Tolerated it, right? It came to be a virtue to tolerate every Tom, Dick, Harry, and nutcase that came through the door. And so what happens after a while is you don't have any discernment. There, you got to tolerate everyone, everybody's views. And what happens then? Well, then if you tolerate everything soon, you'll not, everything goes. Because how can you say that's not right? Wait a minute, you're intolerant now. You got got to be tolerant. Unitarians yeah. You know, I, I was I was listening to one. See, when when the Episcopal Church first uh, when they first ordained the gay bishop, was it yeah. the gay bishop? They were talking to some. They had you know, you, you listen to Fox News, which is the only news you should be listening to. If you gotta listen to news, listen to that. But they were talking on there, and some lady came on. I forget who it was. And they were she was some supposed spiritual leader. <clears throat> And he asked, well, you know, what would Paul think, you know, about the ordaining of a, 
of a gay bishop and that. Or Jesus, they asked, well, Jesus, oh, I, I think Jesus is jumping up and down with joy that, uh, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm saying, I don't know, okay, that middle note, lady nutcase, don't listen to her, you know. Um, yeah, immediately I, I executed my intolerant view of reality and said, she's crazy. Why? Because see, in, their, in her mindset, the greatest virtue is tolerance of everything. How dare you say that that gay bishop is a bad guy? I mean, he means, well, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, God created him that way, of all things. You know, the doctor said today on the radio, this program, that he was born that way. Yeah. found out that there's genetics that says. And you know what? That genetic, I want you, you need to think about this, but not too long. Genetically. You know, if they buy into this whole evolutionary theory, evolutionary would really mess up if it created homosexuals, right? Because what would happen? There wouldn't be no grown-ups. For one thing, the jungle would fail. There would be no babies, right? So therefore, you know, homosexuality is an evolutionary dead end. You can tell them that way. You know? But the whole point here, Paul is saying, start over new. Deal with the sin and don't go around patting yourselves on how tolerant you are. Now understand what this toleration here is. You got to be very careful on this. The toleration that Paul is speaking against is toleration of what? Christian sins. Sin. Sin. What's a sin? Well, God defines what those are. Paul is not arguing here about toleration of different viewpoints or, or you know, in, in the church of our, you know, the, the differences we have as individuals. The non-essential, non-theological, non that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about toleration of sin. What are we to do to one another? We're to tolerate each other, right? Personality-wise, there are some people I don't like. I just don't like them. I don't like their personality. I don't like them. But in the body of Christ, what am I to do? Love them. You think Christ... You know, I mean, actually, Christ said this, you know... So how long do I have to put up with you guys? <laughs> Remember when he got exasperated with the disciples? How long have I got to put up with you guys? Too? You know, they're, they're, we, the, the toleration that's spoken against here is toleration of blatant, open evil. We're not to tolerate that. Of course we are to tolerate other people and their differences and their personalities and the little quirks they have. That's not, that's part of, Deferring to one another, that's part of body life, of loving others. The toleration here is toleration of evil and sin. We're not to tolerate that. We're not to allow that in the church and pat ourselves on the back on how good it is that we're not so judgmental as to actually throw the adulterer out. That's not what is talked about here. See, and I wrote in my epistle, verse 9. Now, what epistle was that? That's the lost first Corinthians. Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. What does it mean not to keep company with them? Don't associate with them. Don't hang around with them. Don't eat dinner with them. Don't talk to them. Why is that? What will they do? They'll influence you. Now notice what he says here. I certainly did not mean 
with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortion or idolaters. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. That's just a representative list. And he's saying, I did mean that you don't hang around with people of the world. Why? That's what they are, right? Under, we're to influence them. Understand that when the world acts immorally, that's what they're supposed to do. Why is Britney Spears immoral? She's supposed to be that way. She's immoral, right? She's not a Christian. What do you expect? She's not a role model? No. What do you expect? What do you expect from Michael Jackson? What do you expect? I expect more. You know? Now, now, and what Paul's saying is that, you know, you want to get away from the evil people in the world, you know, find yourself a desert island all by yourself, and guess what? You've got an evil person that came along for the ride, you. All right? Um, he said, you, if, if you're going to do that, you got to go out of the world. That's not what I meant by that. What I meant when you don't associate with an immoral people is someone who is a brother and claims it. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or a doubter or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Who are you to avoid hanging around with? Christians who claim to be a Christian and are living in unrepentant sin. Don't hang around with them. Don't hang around with them. He's not saying don't hang around with the unbelievers. You've got to go out of the world. Who did Christ did Christ eat with unbelievers? Yes. Yeah, that's one of the you know, remember the Pharisees? Well, he's over there eating with tax collectors, publicans. You know, we're better than that. We don't do that. No, Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's our mission field. We're not to become like them, but we can't avoid them. But if someone claims to be a Christian and they're living in an immoral, evil, ungodly lifestyle, it is our responsibility. To stay away from them. Now, I've had to practice that in my life. I had a, a friend of mine who it got to the point where every time I went over there, I listened to two straight hours of how bad Open Door was. And I got tired of it. And I stopped going over there. Because I just got tired of... I don't want to hang around with someone who's constantly knocking and judging and talking down about other people. You want to hang around people who all they do is talk about how bad everybody else is? You really want to do that? I don't. I stopped going over there because I got tired of listening to it. It's not that the open door is perfect. Good night. I know that. I know better than anybody it's not perfect. But you know, folks, no place is perfect. And I've had to cut off friendships with people who, you know, want to be this, want to be divisive. You're not supposed to hang around divisive brethren. Why? Well, what's it saying? And I think it's uh, Thessalonians. A, heretic, a, a divisive brother or heretic after the first and second admonition, ignore. The heretic there is someone who's causing division, causing, you know, trying to, Cause division in the church. Stay away from them. Why? Because you'll be sucked into their their divisive attitude. You're not you're not to go there. This is not talking about unbelievers. It's talking about believers 
don't company with believers. Why? Because you want to shame them into their actions. You don't want to become like them. It's, it's saying, you, you, you're a Christian. You're better than that. You shouldn't be going down that route. Why are you acting like that? It's not being hateful to them. It's not being unkind to them. Any more than it's unkind for a father to discipline his child for being rebellious or, or disobedient. It's part of our responsibility as believers. And we're to do that, by the way, the attitude we have is a non-sensorious, non-judgmental, almost like, you know, this hurts me worse than it hurts you. That's the kind of attitude we're to have. Humble, humility, a sense of sorrow. You know, um, there are people today that, that, you know, I used to be close with in an earlier life. I'm not close to anymore because our paths diverged. And, and I've tried to, to maintain a, a growth and a, and a godly spirit, a godly attitude. And their decision was to, you know, division or, or going off into laziness, sloth, whatever. And, you know, I, I'm just not close to them anymore. We've grown apart. Paul is saying, if you have a brother who's sexually immoral, He's covetous, idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or an extortioner. Don't even eat with him. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible, I think, um, in this regard, is Psalm 15. Psalm 15. It's a short little, little psalm. In fact, I, I got through 1 Corinthians 5, so we, we caught up. One half week here. We're getting there. We're supposed to be through chapter 6, but don't worry, we'll get there. Psalm 16. 15. Psalm 15 is, is this this psalm, I, I've, I've often come back to it. It's a psalm you probably should all go home and memorize. Psalmist asks, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle or dwell in your holy hill? Now, what does that mean? Not only who can come in your presence, but who can stay there, right? Um, in, in the modern vernacular, Lord, who can hang around with you? Who do you want to hang with? Right? Now, if you want to hang around with somebody, what kind of people do you hang around with? Someone like you. Someone like you. <laughs> right? So if you want to hang around, God, who does God want to hang around with? God wants to hang around with people who are godly like he is. Lord, who can dwell there? Who can, who can be in your holy hill? Who can, who can come and enjoy that? Well, he who walks uprightly works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. These are Again, this is not an exhaustive list of things. It's representative. What's it mean to walk uprightly? Truth and integrity. Lord, who do you want to hang around with? Well, you want to hang around with someone who has integrity. What's integrity? Huh? Integrity is being what you are in private, what you are in public. Open. Not being two-faced, not hiding things. 
genuine, honesty, all those. A man of integrity is one who is honest and upright and open. He's not hiding things. He's not trying to make you think he's something that he's not. So who does God like to hang around with? He likes to hang around with people who are people of integrity, who are not putting on a show. He wants to be around people who work righteousness. What does that mean? Who do righteous things, which is the opposite of unrighteousness. And not only that, he wants people who speak the truth in their heart. What does it mean to speak the truth in your heart? What do you think it means by that? Speaking the truth in your heart. Do, you, do we lie to ourselves a lot of times? Yeah. Is that speaking the truth in your heart? Speaking the truth in your heart, folks, is having a proper assessment of yourself. Of not trying to deceive yourself, making yourself think that you're something that you're not. You recognize what you are and what you aren't. It all has to do with being a person of integrity, of honesty, of pure judgment, of not, of not placing yourself on a pedestal that you're, you have no right to be on, of thinking you're something that you're not. God wants people who have a proper understanding and view of themselves and who are not constantly thinking that they're something that they're not. Here's one. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend. God does not want a bunch of tattletales in his presence, does he? What does it mean to backbite with your tongue? Well, to slander, to talk about. You know, God does not need you to fill him in on the heart and actions of anybody else. You realize that, right? It's like God said, boy, you know, I didn't know that about him. Thanks for pointing that out. I would have missed that. Do you want to hang around somebody? And stop there. Do you want to hang around somebody that's constantly tearing other people down? Because what's happening when they're with somebody, then you're not there. Yeah, tearing you down. Nor does evil to his neighbor. What does it mean to do evil to your neighbor? To treat people wrongly, to, to, do, to sin against them. And someone who doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. What does it mean to take up a reproach against a friend? It's, it's to side against your friends, to, to take sides in a dispute. We're not to do that. I love that little bird call there, you know. <laughs> Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. What does it mean? God wants people, God wants to hang around people who have the same view as he does about sin. That's what he wants. God hates evil, doesn't he? So what are we to do? Hate evil. Does God love the vile person? I mean, in a God sense of love, yes, but I'm talking about in the relational sense. No. Should we love vile people? Should we like listening to vile people? Okay, that eliminates all the soap operas and that eliminates all the sitcoms on TV right there. That's, that answers that, all right? You're stuck with Fox News. 
and the Discovery Channel. All right, and Star Trek. Um, yeah. How many times, as Christian, somebody asked me, Dave, you watch Seinfeld? I have never in my life watched an episode of Seinfeld. I've never watched Fornicators. No, Friends. Friends. That's it. I've certainly never watched Desperate Housewives. All right. Now you know who they are. God wants to hang around people who love the things he loves and hates the things he hates. If you love someone, if you really, really, really love someone, you hate that which they hate, don't you? If you love God, you want to love the things he loves and hates. That's who God wants to hang with. He wants to hang around people who are like him. Then he says here, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does it mean that? One who keeps his word. One who doesn't lie. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Even if it costs you something. That's the idea there. The one who swears to his own hurt and does not relent. There are people today who make promises and break them. Is God going to want to hang around with someone who runs up their credit cards and then refuses to pay the bill? No. Why? You made a promise and you broke it. Broke it. And then it says here, he who does not put out his money at usury. What does that mean? To take advantage of people who are in, not in authority, but in, in desperate measures. The idea of usury is interest, you know, giving somebody money and charging a higher rate of interest. That does not mean that you can't put your money in a bank and get an appropriate rate of return. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about an individual level. Yeah, being a, being a loan shark. That's what it's talking about here. I'm talking about my family. Yeah. <laughs> and he does not take a bribe against the innocent. What does that mean? His judgment is not swayed for material gain. By the way, the person who does this, what says here, he who does these things shall never be moved. What does it mean to be moved from where? From God's presence. You want, stop and think about that. Would God want to hang around with you? You ever think about it that way? I've thought about that a lot. You know, I, I would hope sometimes that he would, but sometimes I wonder. I mean, if God actually showed up at your door, would he be comfortable in your house? With you there? I mean, stop and think about it. God wants to hang around people who act like him. And that's not, it's not that we're being judgmental or harsh or anything. That's not what it's talking about. But if we love God... And God is grieved with sin. What should be we be grieved about? Sin. sin. If God is concerned about the Christian brother who claims to be a Christian and is living in sin, what should we be concerned about? Same thing. That's all Paul is trying to get at here in 1 Corinthians 5. You guys are patting yourselves on the back of your toleration of this guy you're not doing him a favor. Are you doing a Christian brother a favor by allowing them to live in sin? 
No. So if you really love them, what should you do? Make them an enabler. Yeah. Yeah. Codependent. I hate that word, but don't enable people to live in sin. Don't enable them to do that. I mean, really, really meditate on Psalm 15 and really ask yourself, would God want to hang around with me? And if he wouldn't want to hang around with me, why is that? Which one of those attitudes am I really not? You know, am I always telling God about the faults of everybody else? Am I, am I hypercritical? Backbiting against everybody? God doesn't need that. God doesn't want that. Am I tolerating those things which he hates? If I know it, it, it brings God grief and sorrow for a person to be in sin, does it bring me grief and sorrow for that? And for my own self? You know, am I grieving for my own sin? Does it bother me? He's saying, for what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? What's the rhetorical answer? Nothing. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to sin. That's what unbelievers do. They're supposed to do that. It's not my responsibility. I don't enact church discipline on the unbelievers. They're the mission field. But if someone claims to be a Christian, I'm to deal with that. Do you not judge those who are inside? The answer is yes. You don't judge the ones who are outside. You judge the ones who are inside. Who does God discipline? His kids or somebody else's? Yes. His kids. Whose kids do you discipline? Yours or somebody else's? Well, yeah. Yours, right? I used the illustration one time. You know, if you're a parent and you walk into a room of a bunch of kids wreaking havoc, which kid do you go after? Yours first, right? This, folks, we are a family. We're a body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters. And as brothers, I need to be concerned about how my brothers and sisters are acting. That's part of being a family. That's what family is all about. God is interested in the family. And, and our discipline should be not... Sometimes I feel like disciplining other people's kids, right? You do sometimes. But God punishes and, and disciplines those who are his. Hebrews 12. What son is he who the father does not chasten? If, if the father is not chastening you, you're, you're like an illegitimate child. You're a bastard, Paul says. You're not a, ch a legitimate child. God disciplines those who are his. And in the body of Christ, we, we grieve over those who are drawn into sin. And we want to bring them dis in, in, a, in a gentle act of discipline back into fellowship. That, by the way, is the goal of discipline. What's the goal of spiritual discipline? Excommunication? It's restoration. And it's interesting, the word in Galatians, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The word restore there was a medical term to set a bone. It's used to set a bone. Or it was also used to mend nets. You repair a net. Restore him. 
the, the goal of church discipline is not so I can be pompous and have the joy of kicking somebody out of the church, you know, and being a Pharisee about it. It's sorrowful and it's, it's to draw them back into the body, to draw them to repentance, to make them feel ashamed of what they're doing. But those who are outside God judges, God takes care of the outside people. That's his responsibility. What is your responsibility as a believer? Deal with those who are inside, who claim the name of Christ. And don't pat yourself on the back for being so gracious and loving and tolerant that you're not dealing with that. Just, he says, therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Put them away. We're two minutes early. Any comments or questions or you know, I'm doing we're not having a lot of discussion yet. Hopefully you'll all warm up. What? Oh chapter twelve, thirteen and fourteen. All right, we'll get into that. All right. Any comments or questions or thoughts or observations or All right. Well, let's close in prayer, and we're, we're, we're caught up a half week, so next week we'll catch up a little more. Father, thanks so much for this day and for bringing us together. I pray, Father, that our hearts might, in, in some small way, be like yours, that um, we'd love the things you love and hate the things you hate. I pray that we would be men and women who that if you were to show up tonight, you'd, be want, you'd want to be around us because we share your same heart. We share your same concerns and, and, and love. Father, I just pray you help us to ponder these things and ask us those, help us to ask ourselves those tough questions. And uh, thank you for this time we've had to study. Help us to remember it and to apply it in our lives in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.